0: Hare Krishna.
1: Hare Krishna.
0: Krishna. Krishna. So begin the Bhagavatam class live from Iskand Tucson. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya
2: Vasudevaya.
0: So, Prabhupada's purport. In this verse, two important words nullify the impersonalist theory that everything is God. Here, Kardama says, O personality of Godhead, you are alone, but you have various energies. The example of the spider is very significant also. The spider is an individual living entity and by its energy, it creates a cobweb and plays on it. And whenever it likes, it winds up the cobweb, thus ending the play. When the cobweb is manufactured by the saliva of the spider, the spider does not become impersonal. Similarly, the creation and manifestation of the material or spiritual energy does not render the creator impersonal. It's kind of a stupid idea that it would make the creator impersonal, actually. But nevertheless, the impersonalists say things like that. Here, the very prayer suggests that God is sentient and can hear the prayers and fulfill the desires of the devotee. Therefore, he is saccharananda vikraha, the form of bliss, knowledge, and eternity. So, so the first word here, the first word that you cannot see, is eka, which in Sanskrit means one, also means alone. If you think of the word alone, it's just all one. It's just so, so it means alone or one. So, oh, don't worry about that. It's not really necessary. We're already moving on here. So eka am personally. Swayam means personally, just like there's a marriage process called Swayamvara, which means one's personal choice. Vara means choice. So, Ekak Swayam, so alone, personally, son, being, being alone, unique, uh, personally, Jagatak with a desire to create for the creation of the universe, Aditi Atman. So, um, the word dvītīya, Prabhupāda grammatically can be two things and Prabhupāda does both but He does one in this, in the word-for-word in the, uh, word. Uh, and then he, he translates it the other way in the translation. So dvītīya means second, the se- ordinal number second, like first, second, third. And a dvītīya means without a second. And so, si and then a uh, Anyway, I won't go into all the rules of Sanskrit grammar, but suffice it to say, it can be in Sanskrit a ya" or dvirtiyaya, with a second, in which case it refers to yoga-mayaya, with a second participant, which is yoga maya, or it can mean a ya" that Krishna does it without a second. However, since uh Yoga Maya says your Christian does it through Yoga Maya, the uh translation with a second participant seems natural here in context. So Ekak Swayam San Jagataksi Yatman, uh Krishna does it within himself, Adi Yoga Maya. Uh, with His energy and adhi means above or over, so Krishna stands above His potency. So anyway, then the verse which is in the second person directly addressing Krishna, srijasi, you create, a uh the world. pasi, you maintain it or protect it or preserve it. punar, again, grisishasi, uh, which in Sanskrit is translated you will wind up literally means you will sort of like you will swallow it you will devour it you will Yeah, that's what it means in the future because obviously the universe is here right now Otherwise no one would be listening to this verse. So it's talking about a future event. This is in the future tense Krishishya uh, see say You will devour or wind up the world Yata. Uh, just as Urnanavi, a, uh, just as a spider, Bhagavan, O Lord, Sashakti so B, does that by its own energies. Bhagavan, by the way, the word Bhagavan here is in the vocative. It's not Bhagavan, which would make it the subject of the sentence. It's Bhagavan, <coughs> which is directly addressing the Lord. Anyway, I hope you caught that subtle distinction in the last vowel. I'm sure you all did. (laughs) Bhagavan and Bhagavan, which means addressing the Lord. So, um, the idea here is that Krishna is an absolute truth. Prabhupada explains in the beginning of his introduction to the Bhagavatam that there is a vast difference between the concept of God, a supreme being, and an absolute truth because for example, right now they're getting down to the end of the uh, college football season, which we know nothing about because we practice bhakti yoga. And so they have these these rankings, they rank the teams. And so the number one team, whoever ends up being the national champion, will be the supreme team, but it's not absolute. If you put all the other teams on the field, you know, thousands of other players against the champion team, the champion team would be brutally defeated. So. The champion, you can be supreme, which means the highest. In fact, here's a translation of supreme from a dictionary. Uh, Holding authority or office superior to all others, strongest, most important, or most powerful. So you could be the number one ranked living being in in, in the conception of God, but you may not be an absolute truth. For example, there are many dualistic theories going back to the Gnostics and uh, Manichaeans, even the Aztecs had this type of dualism, kind of uh, an awful form of it. But anyway, here the idea is that there is a God, but God is not absolute. There's also a, so to speak, an evil deity, and God, the good God is fighting against the bad God, and uh, in their wisdom, the Aztecs thought, in order to strengthen the good God, the God of the sun, we should uh, march a lot of people up to the top of the pyramids, cut their hearts out, uh, and, yes, yeah, so Therefore, I said awful. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but the idea was that they're trying to empower the good God. So uh, this has been one strategy to solve what in philosophy is called the problem of evil which is if there is a God who is good, if there's an all good God, why is there so much bad in the world? So one historical answer, which is not exactly correct, but one way that people have answered this question is by saying that there is a God and God is good, but God isn't all powerful. In fact, there was one uh, fairly modern version of this wrong answer uh, given There was a book that came out, I think, in the 70s called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Remember that? Those who are mature among us, not old, but mature. We remember that. So Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's written by a rabbi who concluded that, yes, there is a God, and God is good, but God is not all-powerful. He's doing the best he can, Uh, but that's the best he can do because the forces of evil are also very strong. So, if we have a God who's not all-powerful, it's not really a God with a capital G. It's sort of just a supreme being, but not a being who particularly is worthy of our deepest uh, respect. Because, let's say, someone's a doctor, and but the doctor can't cure your disease, so why bother? You know, the doctor can't cure your disease, then many people think, well, the best I can do is a recreational drug or something. So, so similarly, if God can't actually protect you, which according to this theory, he cannot, then why bother? Why bother devoting yourself to someone who can't actually help you? So that's one way uh, around this problem. Um, since, But again, since this verse is insisting in fact, many verses in this section are insisting that God is and Krishna is an absolute truth not merely a supreme being uh, I will perhaps take on this challenge which is also called theodicy the problem of evil from the Greek words "theos," uh, which means uh, which means God and DK uh, which in Greek means justice so theodicy means the is there justice in God does God have the power or the will to ensure that there is perfect justice in the universe. And among atheists, everyone boo and his okay, among atheists, um, that's practically their main argument. Because otherwise there is no argument against God because the atheist doesn't know. Someone's an atheist, they don't know. They just don't believe it. But the fact they don't believe it doesn't mean it's true. We can believe lots of things that aren't true. And since it's actually inconceivable how you would prove there's no God, because what would you do? How can you prove that there are no unicorns in the universe? I mean, you don't have access to the whole universe. And so to say that there are no unicorns in the universe, that is my belief. Next It's just not interesting. It's just you're telling us something which, so what? So you don't believe it. You can't prove it. So proving non-existence, especially proving the non-existence of something which is not material, and thus, by definition, not within the range of your senses, is um, absurd. How are you going to prove something that's beyond your perception or the absence of it? Of course people they will try to turn that argument around and say well you can't prove there is a god because it's beyond your perception but not really because uh in our system which is consistent which is coherent and that's one of the standard uh, epistemological methods of showing the validity or at least the uh, significance showing that a particular philosophy at least is a good candidate is showing that it's internally coherent, that there are internal contradictions, it's not even a candidate. So we teach that by nature as souls, not bodies, we have the intrinsic power to perceive God under favorable conditions. Favorable conditions being we're not envious of God at all. So since we do have that intrinsic power, according to our understanding, therefore it is not correct to say it is beyond our power to see God. However, if someone says there's no eternal soul, there's no God, then they are postulating a worldview in which there is no power to see beyond the material. And therefore, within that philosophy uh, it is necessarily the case that you cannot prove the non-existence of God or you can't prove there is God within that worldview. But within ours, it's different. Anyway, so, any questions on that so far? A little bit of philosophy before breakfast. I hope it doesn't give you a headache. If it does, you can't sue me because you came to the class. So, if there are no questions on this, uh, then I will go on to the point of theodicy, or the problem of evil. Since Krishna, or Kardamamuni Muni here, is claiming, what Krishna also claims in the Gita, and also in the Bhagavatam. Uh, that he is the absolute truth. Is there any way to uh, diminish?
1: He's
0: on the roof. Oh. He can't wait a few minutes?
1: Oh, is it necessary to fix it immediately? He did it yesterday, but we didn't hear him. I don't know. You see, his the shadow of his feet right
0: there. That's <laughs> suspicious. So, you got a question?
1: Um... Yeah, you read the first can of purport about yes. God, and, the and uh, I just like to hear a little more about that. When I, cause I about what? About the difference between God and the absolute truth. Okay. Is that way? Uh, I mean, I, I present how God is. It just means controller. I think that's what Prabhupada prophet says. It just means controller, right?
0: But when you get to the absolute truth, I think the way Prophet says it it means it's the ultimate source of all energy. Yes. So maybe you can. Well, that's it. It's the ultimate source, and and but it's actually uh, actually it's more than just the source because something could be a source that would actually also be compatible with a deistic philosophy. Deism means that um, God originally. You know, sets the ball rolling, gets you know, hits the on switch, but then one God, once God creates the world, he kind of goes and has other things to do, and therefore God doesn't really participate in his creation. It's just literally a source, just like you can go to a store, let's say, and buy a soccer ball.
1: Yeah.
0: I read your mind. <laughs> you can go to a store and buy a soccer ball, and then go and play soccer. And once you pay for the ball. And uh, walk out of the store, assuming it works, you don't have to take it back, you have nothing more to do with the store, and the store has nothing to do with your soccer game. And that's why the Bhagavatam and Vedanta say that, that the absolute truth is actually Janmadi Asya, Janma Adi, birth, etc. So in Sanskrit, the word Adi means the origin, or first, or original, as an Adi Purusha. But it's also used very, very frequently in Sanskrit as the equivalent of our word, etc. And so it's attached at the end of a word like Janma Adi, Janmadi, to mean the group of things, a well-known group of which, in or in which Janma is the first member. So it's a group, anyway, in Sanskrit it's a Bahuvri compound. So in Sanskrit, Janmadi, Janma Adi means a group whose first member, Adi, is Janma. So the well known group whose first member is Adi is birth, maintenance, and destruction. So therefore, Janmadi actually means uh, the origin, uh, that supreme being who gives birth. To the universe, who maintains it, and finally withdraws it.
1: That's the Cardinal saying, "Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah." So, um, yeah, exactly. That's what Cardinal is saying.
1: Is it appropriate to bring in? I, I like to bring in Radha sometimes because people think God is just a kind of male concept. So then <laughs> I bring in.
0: The- Patria filio, you know that the old Catholic thing, father and son. No women. Do you ever notice that? It's it's a it's a, it's a men's club. <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Anyway, I won't go into that, so is that
1: useful in, in talking about? What's absolute, that? Is that useful in talking about the absolute truth as opposed to God that you bring in?
0: Well, no, not necessarily, because you could have a divine couple who are not an absolute truth. So the the, the fact that Krishna is. Uh, you know, actually the absolute truth, or the fact that God is a, a male-female com- combination, divine couple, that in itself doesn't mean that they are an absolute truth. They are, but not because they're a couple. It shows the completeness of this understanding of the absolute truth because it would be, it would be kind of a dull spiritual world. <laughs> if, you know, if, if it wasn't Radha Krishna. So, so it shows the completeness of the conception, but it doesn't show that it's an absolute truth in itself.
1: So
0: uh, how about uh, in the Gita, nine, four, and five, but that's more like the attitude. Nine? Oh, oh, mayata um, tamirang sarvaṁ. Is that more? murti na maçdhāni sarva yeah, it does suggest an absolute truth. It he's does suggest that…
1: Yeah.
0: Right, but one could say, for example, that Krishna begins at that first that saying, I pervade this entire world, but one could say, what about other worlds? Or you could say, "Krishna all of this, I pervade all of this. In Sanskrit, this is sort of philosophical shorthand for uh, meaning this material world. Because in Sanskrit, uh, just like if you know Spanish or any of those Latin languages, there's the word like this, that, and the one over there farther. In Spanish would be uh, esto, eso, y aquello. and when you know Spanish?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, honk if you know Spanish. So, <laughs> and also, of course, in Portuguese it's the same. So... So they have that also in Sanskrit. So idam is this, and tut is that. And then a so or is that one there. I mean a farther one. So this, just the word this in Sanskrit, the neuter word this comes to mean just the world that you can actually see. The world that you can actually see. In other words, the world you're in right now.
1: So you have to go to that first verse of the Bhagavatam to really get the
0: package, the absolute truth, right? Uh, yeah. The first verse of the Bhagavatam explains that, and then throughout the Bhagavatam, it's explained even more elaborately. It's explained even more elaborately. Okay. Yes. Is I hear
1: on message I like hearing
0: someone and one. Oh, uh, you hear on message somewhere online? Yeah, that's where. Saguna Sag, Sanskrit means with, near means without, like nirvana, without Vana. So, Saguna means that God in his ultimate form or his ultimate state has qualities, such as his six opulences and so on. And, and Nirguna brother, means the absolute truth ultimately has no qualities. So, um, here, the word guna does not mean the three modes of nature. It's just the general word guna, which means quality. <clears throat> and it also often means, like in English, a good quality. You can say someone has a mixture of qualities, or you can just say, this: he's a quality person, or this is a quality bicycle, which means good quality. So it's exactly the same in Sanskrit. Guna, can be a sort of a neutral word meaning any quality, good or bad, but it also often means a good quality. So saguna with qualities, meaning like is like Krishna, God is beautiful, the absolute truth is kind, the absolute truth has a has an eternal form. Of course, if you take the nirguna Brahma conception, ultimately, philosophically, it makes no sense because why would a nirguna, a qualityless, absolute create a world with so many qualities. Why would that happen? And yet the absolute truth is one, where do all the living beings come from? And then they never really answered this, the impersonalists, they come up with this kind of a silly answer that, well, it's just an illusion. uh, And actually their, their individuality is an illusion. The problem with that is that we believe that illusion. So who is it that's believing the illusion? We know, it's just like Descartes said, you know, René, that cogito ergo sum. Descartes said that, um, well he, in the 1600s, he was a great scientist and philosopher, one of the great minds of his century. And um, he performed this thought experiment, which was pretty bold in his time, because he lived at a time, especially he lived in uh, France, which was uh, heavily Catholic. I mean, you could say violently Catholic, basically because in the previous century, the uh, King of France sort of slaughtered everyone that didn't feel called to be a Catholic. Because that was was during the days of the Protestant Reformation and all that. So it wasn't, France was sort of involuntarily a Catholic nation and um, Although some people have been Catholics voluntarily, but not nearly as many as were because people decided they'd rather stay alive and maybe be Catholic. So um, he performed a thought experiment. He thought, well, what if I doubt everything that I think I know, like everything, even the world? I doubt everything that I think I know. And because this was kind of a bold philosophical experiment in his time, if you look at the preface to his book, The Meditations, he goes out of his way to assure the the theological powers that be, which were actually the faculty of the Sorbonne. The Sorbonne in Paris was a Catholic university at that point. And so he goes out of his way to tell the people basically that have the power to you know, have him burned at the stake. He says that, uh, actually, we all know that the real truth is everything the Catholic Church says. However, there are some people who are so ridiculous and foolish, they don't believe that. So therefore, my book is not for intelligent people who are all Catholics, but uh, it's for those foolish people who, who don't believe in the Catholic revelation. Whether Descartes really believed this or not, You'll never know unless anyone here actually channel him. (laughs) Okay, is that allowed in the Bhagavatam class, channel old philosophers? Anyway, so, but he did put that in the preface to his book to stay out of trouble. And uh, so, but then he says, okay, I'm doubting everything. Is there anything at all that I cannot reasonably doubt? If I doubt it, I'm just being foolish. And he he finds something that he can't doubt. That is, I can't doubt that I exist, because I'm thinking. And if I didn't exist, how could I even be thinking about this? So he expressed this with the famous phrase or sentence, cogito ergo sum. If you know Spanish, or cognition cogito means I think, ergo, therefore sum, which in Spanish is soy. Therefore I exist, I am. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And then he builds, he kind of, you know, rescues a lot, the rest of reality, like the fact that he's a soul and there's a God, he builds on that. That's the foundation. They starts to make arguments based on that. So therefore, um, the fact that we exist as persons, as individual persons, we actually know that more certainly than we know anything else. And so therefore to say, well, maybe you don't exist. No, we know we exist. We know we are individual persons. In fact, we know it more clearly than we know anything else because everything else we know, we only know because we are persons. And therefore to say that the absolute truth has no qualities uh, which means we don't because uh, in our ultimate spiritual state we're supposed to be like the source of our existence. So the impersonal argument that, well, there really is only one thing, which is the absolute truth, impersonal Brahman, but now uh, you can't even say we falsely think we're persons because we don't exist, right? There's only one thing. It's a really bad philosophy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean when you really start talking about it, it's like, seriously? Are you really do you really believe that? It makes no sense at all. And tends, it's not very popular. Some people say they're impersonalists, but just step on their blue suede shoes and see what happens. I mean, just offend them in some way and watch how their individual self rushes back to the surface. So Yeah, it's not, it's not a serious idea, it's just kind of word games as opposed to a serious description of what we know to be
1: life. Yes? So people think that um, the impersonal think that Nirguna Vermont was the absolute
2: truth and that through our imagination...
1: No, we don't exist. We don't
0: exist. So therefore, it's like the the idea that, that I, I couldn't wait a few minutes. Sorry. Been
1: waiting for four months. Oh, he's a oh,
0: he's an outside.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, he's not a devotee that we can intimidate. Yeah. Him. Oh, I see.
1: Yeah. Put him line.
0: All right. We could immediately baptize him and then intimidate him. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to explain what they think. It's so counterintuitive, it's so ultimately absurd, but I'll try my best. You know, it's like you, there is no you. And so right now there's an illusion, which almost, although you are experiencing the illusion because you think you're a person, somehow you're not a person and you're not really experiencing an illusion because God cannot be an illusion. That's about the best I can do. It, it's really absurd. It contradicts itself all over the place. And it's just a miracle of the material world that anyone could take it seriously. Yes?
2: Brahman is not like body.
0: Well, no, there is, there is a Nirguna Brahman, which is the Brahma Jyoti. There is an impersonal existence. It just doesn't create the world. It's, not, it's, just, it's just this field of spiritual energy. That's why the impersonalists always say you can't describe it in words. It's true because you cannot reasonably describe in words something which is unreasonable and nonsense. I cannot reasonably describe in words a square circle because there is no such thing. So the main reason you can't describe something in words is that it's ridiculous. It's absurd, it contradicts itself, and that's why you can't describe it in words. There is an impersonal Brahman. It just does not account for the creation, and it does not explain why we are the way we are. It's funny, actually, even mundane scholars, academics have pointed out the silliness, because uh, I remember I was reading when I was preparing to give my course on the history of India, and, Religion at the University of Florida, I used one book, it was the history of Indian philosophy, and it said that, ironically, the impersonalists who say you can't describe the truth in words wrote more books than anyone else. You know, they, they used millions of words to explain that you cannot explain with words. Actually, this, this silly contradiction, even when I was young, er, and I was uh, a student at the University of California, Berkeley in the late 60s, and I I took a course in German literature, in translation, we didn't read it in German. And, uh, because I was a comparative literature major at that time. So, um, the teacher was this nice young guy from Germany. You're reading Siddhartha, that book Siddhartha. And the teacher was sort of laughing at the book because Siddhartha says, he says on on page whatever, you know, he, 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 he states that you cannot describe the truth and he describes this fact that you cannot describe the truth on this page and that page. And so he was just laughing at this book, which keeps using words to say that you can't use words. And as we know, there is a standard method of philosophical discernment which is called, in fact, in the Latin "via negativa," which you can understand if you know Spanish, the negative way. "Via negativa," which means that if you explain everything that something isn't, what's left is the truth. And so, uh, but still, if you say, but, but, but if you say that you cannot describe it in words, I guess the point I'm making is even though that's a negative statement, it's still a description. If you say that the truth cannot be described in words, that is still a description of the truth. And it is still a description with words. So I am using words to describe a feature of something that cannot be described in words. That is called in plain English a contradiction. It's a statement which, if it's true, is not true. And the statement which, if it's true, is not true, is nonsense. So therefore, the statement that you cannot describe the truth in words, which is a description in words of the truth, is just just silliness. It's not a serious statement. Uh, Krishna in the second chapter used that way for a few verses. Why does Krishna what? Used use to be a negative in 223 25. Well, let me look at my Gita. Is there a Gita in the house? Uh, right, my GBC's zone for a Gita. My kingdom for a Gita. So, you said 223? 223. Okay. First, you should tell me what prizes I can win. We should have, we should do a game show format, like one of the devotees smiles and points to all the prizes. <laughs> and then you ask me questions. You should do that, Maybe We should, I should be able to win valuable prizes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so 223. Yes, that, um, Weapons do not cut it or him. I'm talking about the soul. Uh, fire does not burn it. Water does not moisten or dissolve it. And the wind does not sort of dry it out. Yes, this is a, a via negativa, exactly. And, and, and again, you're right. The next verse is acedio young this soul. Actually, no, Krishna's talking about the soul because I am is a masculine pronoun referring to Atma, which is a, a masculine word. So this soul is uh, indivisible, uh, cannot, unburnable, literally, undissolvable, un, can't be dried up. Yeah, those are all negative definitions, but Krishna, the whole point of the Bhagavad Gita is that you can describe the absolute truth of words because Gita, the very word Gita, means words. It's not an instrumental, like Walk, Don't Run, but the and little, all those great old surfing instrumentals in the 60s. If you don't know those songs, then uh, Chris, I been really been feel done. sorry for you. So. Yes, <laughs> so
1: why does Krishna <laughs> use that way? What's, what's the strategy?
0: Well, the strategy is very simple. You have to know what something is and what it isn't. Just like when you make an initiation vow, I will do this, I won't do that. So a complete description always says what something is and what it isn't. Because if you simply say what something is, it always it, 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 there's always a logical possibility that could also be something else that you didn't mention. So you have to say it's this and nothing more, but nothing is a negative word. So a positive description without a negative adjunct, generally cannot be a complete description because you say something is this, but it could be something else also. So you have to rule out the possibility that it's some other thing, which contradicts what it is. It's it's also a way of being emphatic that uh, uh, I will stay home. I will not go to your party, for example, real world Vaishnav example. So, you know, when you say something positively and then negatively, then it, Really nails it down, so to speak. And that's nirguna sattva, like tadajit tadajit. Yeah, that's the Isopanishad tadajit, which interestingly is in the neuter. That truth, and Krishna also uses the neuter to describe Himself in the thirteenth chapter of the Gita. A lot of the thirteenth chapter of the Gita, where Krishna is describing the super soul. Is Sanskrit is grammatically in the neuter, like it or that? Why
1: do they do
0: that? Uh, because you can talk about it as a as truth. You can, for example, we can say that uh, it is not that, or or it is that. That is what it is. Like Krishna is personal, and that we can we can say that is the fact, or that is. Uh, or or, or you could say that truth. For example, you could say, uh, we chant the names of the truth. The truth is not a masculine word in English. Mm
1: -hmm. Unlike
0: other languages, many other languages, English is not a gendered language. Oh my God, imagine the political correctness if it was. It's unimaginable. So, um, but we can say in English, for example, uh, we are dedicated to the truth. The truth is not a matter. I mean, the word "he" or "him" were dedicated to him, or or to that's a gendered word. Pronouns are gendered in English, but not regular nouns. And so, if we say we are seeking the truth, that's a neuter expression, type of English neuter. So, um, maybe you
1: can speak some more about the theodicy because. Justifying the ways of God. Oh my God, you're you,
0: okay. You better let me go because <laughs> I know you are as serious as I am about a punctual breakfast. <laughs> and so I'll just say a few words. I don't want to lose your goodwill by <laughs> delaying your breakfast. So, um, the Odyssey is God just? Is God fair? Or does God have the power to ensure justice? So I begin with a general statement. What would have to be the case? In order for us to say that someone is a perfect moral agent, again, the word agent doesn't mean someone that sells you you know, car insurance or something, agent in philosophy means someone who has uh, the consciousness and the will to engage in intentional activities and therefore to be responsible for what they do. So in order for Christian to be accepted as a perfect moral agent, in order for anyone to be a perfect moral agent, uh, we we'll start with the general definition, it would have to be the case that if that person causes, intentionally causes pain or suffering to another conscious being, that that pain or suffering is caused to as as the least invasive way of bringing about a necessary good. In other words, for example, let's say you go to the dentist and the dentist says, we have to do a procedure. Now, if the dentist is doing the procedure because the dentist uh, has some bills to pay and the procedure is gonna be painful, then the dentist is not acting morally. The dentist is causing you pain for his or her own selfish purpose. So if the dentist says to you that we have to do this procedure, you expect, you assume if the agent, the dentist is not crazy, is, you know, is a good person, the agent that, first of all, the procedure is necessary. It's not optional. Well, it's not just like aesthetic. Well, you know, you look better, but therefore I'm going to tie you down and force you to No, it's, it has to be something which is really necessary to bring about an essential good, like your oral, Like something really bad will happen if you don't do this procedure. And so it's necessary and the dentist will do it in the least painful way possible. If the dentist does not meet those two requirements, the dentist is not acting as a perfect moral agent. So if you look at the suffering of the world, you would have to ask the simple question. First of all, is that suffering necessary to bring about an essential good? And secondly, is the suffering the least possible to bring about that good? In other words, it would not be possible to bring about that essential good with a less painful procedure, in this case, karmic reaction. If the answer to both those questions is yes, then despite all the suffering in the world, God as the controller is still acting as a perfect moral agent. And that's why the problem of evil has never, I mean, no serious philosopher would call it a proof. It's just, well, here's one way to look at it, but you can't prove that. How will you prove? Because for example, because there's a third factor, and that is free will. Let's say you go and rob a bank and you're caught and therefore you have to pay a ten dollar fine. Your obvious conclusion would be, wow, I found my calling. Bank robbery. For example, when I was uh a when I was younger, when I, was a freshman, I was a freshman at Berkeley and I lived in a dormitory. And uh, it just kind of seemed absurd to me because I, I was really meant to be a member of the Hare Krishna cult, and um, and therefore when I was in college, it just really it really seemed absurd. And you know, all these little rules—they even elected dorm officers who did little. So anyway, the whole thing just struck me. I, I mean, now in retrospect, I have a much kinder evaluation, but because. I didn't know the purpose of life. I didn't know who I was and I knew they didn't know. I thought like, why are you guys getting so interested in all these trivial things when you don't even know the the big things? But anyway, I'm a little more charitable now (laughs) in my, so uh, I got in trouble because I I broke some rule. I mean, it didn't hurt anybody. I didn't really, but I just did it just because I thought it was so absurd. So they—I uh, won't tell you what I did, <clears throat> which is incompatible with the uh, extraordinary reverence you you feel for me. But anyway, I did—I did kind of some silly thing, broke a rule, and I wouldn't follow their command to desist, and you know they couldn't physically stop me, and so they had a special meeting, and I think they imposed <coughs> upon me a five-dollar fine, which I didn't pay. And so so the point I'm making is the punishment. The punishment was so trivial that I it did not act as a deterrent. <laughs> and so, because we're dealing with subtle bodies, and the fact that someone commits an evil act is because they've got some real garbage in their head. You know, perhaps at a very deep level. They have a twisted, deep psychology. And so... The punishment has to be sufficient to efficiently communicate to the person the evil or, the, or what they've done. It's like, uh, it's like that you know, famous Bob Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone, how does it feel? Anyone know that song?
1: Too well.
0: Yes, if you don't know that song, hang your head in shame. Anyway, so, the idea of that song is, you know, once upon a time, you dressed so fine, you threw the bums a dime in your prime, like a very sort of proud, arrogant young lady who then is sort of forced to develop empathy by becoming a member of that group that she so looked down upon. But, but the idea here is that, one second, is, is, that, is that she did develop empathy hopefully and so the punishment has to be sufficient to actually root out the disease and create the type of empathy which is a a a characteristic of and even a precondition of spiritual consciousness and spiritual health so yes
1: some of the punishments listed in the fifth canon seems greater than the crime in my mind and yeah a lot of mine is embracing the hot iron man or woman when they're too willing in parties
0: yeah, should yeah, consensual so illicit acceptable. sex be punished by extreme torture? Um, Bhakti Takur Dotino Takur actually writes about this and suggests that that's, those are not literal. That's not really what happens.:
1: uh, I've been asking this question for like 25 years.' Fun to tell me that And, and we have other fine <laughs> products. <laughs>
0: I will, de- I, will, I will beat any confirmed offer if you, anyway, for spiritual guidance. So, so just, to, just to follow up, and then you just follow up on that. Um, it's like, for example, when I was, yeah, I had really good parents. I, I, was, I mean, they weren't devotees, but they were very, very loving parents. And so uh, my father, I guess he learned from his father that so whenever we, you know he wanted to threaten us or scare us into compliance, he would say, I'm going to take off my belt like he was gonna like hit his yeah, belt. He never actually. And what sometimes, you know, he had actually would half take off his belt, and we would start laughing because we would say, "Hey, your pants are gonna fall down." Because we, because we, we knew. I mean, he was a very kind person. We knew he's never actually gonna hit us, and so he would say that I would take off. Did you ever hear that?
1: Some people do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I. There was no. There was no. Yeah. I, I was very fortunate in the parents I had. So. Uh, so it's kind of like you know, I'm gonna do this, or I'm gonna do that, or some I know in England they used to have this parents would tell children that if you go out of your house dirty, the evil spirits will capture you and take you away. So the kids would never go out of the house until they cleaned up. So, yeah, so it,
1: i I because of that really for 12 years, of the yeah, because man? of the fifth canon <laughs> I'm like, that's not my god that does that.
0: I would say, if everything else fails, uh, try a different hermeneutic. <laughs> I mean, hermeneutics means like how do you approach certain statements in the scripture? Like, because we know, we know from Prabhupada that certain statements are literal, certain statements are allegorical. Nārada Muni tells an allegorical story and declares it to be an allegory. The Chaitanya Charitamrita says there are certain illusory stories in the in, 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 in the in the in the Bhagavata, which are just meant to teach a point. So we have wiggle room here.
1: What do you say about
0: that? He said that it's just it's sort of an exaggerated statement, just to kind of get yeah get people's attention so they will not do it. Yes?
2: Um, this sort of seems to be similar to, in a scientific way. Um, you seem to be somewhat of a spiritual scientist. And uh, let's see, it might be no more different than just the, uh, the Vedic science is totally different from Western or modern science. Um, but I was wondering if you had anything to say about the Bhagavad-gita and Krishna says that of the stars, I am the moon. And then in the purport, it says that the sun is one and that the um, stars that we know as suns in modern science are actually uh, moons and planets. Yeah. The question of the one sun. And that okay. Was, so uh, first uh, of all,
0: Krishna, doesn't Krishna say Naksatrana yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's see what the word nakshatra means, first of all because we can't do this with English translations. Let's see. Please specify. Oh wait.
1: Oh, Sanskrit word. Okay, I put in the wrong box here.
0: A Nuxitra. A star or any Heavenly body. Any heavenly body. An asterism or constellation through which the moon passes, a lunar mansion. So a Krishna, so what Krishna, what Krishna is saying is of lunar mansions, in other words, of moon mansions, I'm the moon. This is not an astronomical, he, he's not this, this is he's not talking about stars in the modern astronomical sense.
2: the star, the sun is one. Is the sun ones? is
0: one. Yeah, however, Prabhupada taught us a hermeneutic principle, which is that a spiritual master speaks infallibly when citing Shastra and not, when not citing Shastra. And so the commentaries of Acharyas uh, are taken to be absolute when they cite uh, Shastra. Therefore, for example, it's common that on certain detail, this is a detail, you know, whether, you know, the nakshatra, whether it's, it's a star in the modern astronomical sense, or simply a lunar mansion, that is not Siddhanta. Siddhanta, the word Siddhanta, which means the perfect inclusion, refers to uh, philosophical conclusions. For example, you're an eternal soul, that's Siddhanta. That Krishna is God, is Siddhanta. That Krishna is the original form of God, is Siddhanta. There's a law of karma operating in the universe is Siddhanta. Uh, a, an astronomical detail is not Siddhanta. And so Prabhupada said that the greatest Vaishnava philosopher is uh, Jiva Goswami who wrote a book on epistemology called the Tatva Sandharva. And he explains in his book that, you know, Shastras and Charis are authoritative on these philosophical conclusions. And Prabhupada taught us repeatedly, that a pure devotee is not materially infallible or uh, or omniscient. And so therefore, I mean, there are many devotees who think that we should accept Prabhupada as authority on every topic except one. The one topic on which Prabhupada is not an authority is Prabhupada himself. So we should ignore or bypass Prabhupada's own clear self-description and substitute a better description, namely someone who is materially infallible and omniscient. And Prabhupada said to Jayadvaita Swami that if you think a pure devotee is materially omniscient or infallible, you don't understand our philosophy. You don't understand what it means to be a pure devotee. So it's logically impossible, logically, just like Logically impossible is a technical term. Like it's logically impossible that there is a square circle in this room. It's logically if you know what the word square means, what the word circle means, it's, it it just can't be, because because the term square circle doesn't mean anything. So if you're saying could be a, but those since those words don't mean anything. There's no thing that that could be there. So in the same way. Prabhupada says that I'm not infallible or Prabhupada said I make mistakes. He said that many times on material, not on spiritual things.
2: Yeah, like uh, Mr. Toyota's daughter or or claimed to be Mr. Toyota's daughter and it wasn't that I'm I'm not a mission.
0: Yeah, yeah, and Prabhupada used to quote the Aquarian Gospel which it turns out was written a little over 100 years ago (laughs) by some guy who was just writing a book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, if you think everything Prabhupada said is true, you don't believe everything Prabhupada said, because if you say everything Prabhupada said is true, but he said, I make mistakes. But so if you say Prabhupada doesn't make mistakes, you don't believe everything Prabhupada said. If you say that everything Prabhupada said is correct, even sort of, you know, basically insignificant material details, then you don't believe everything Prabhupada said. Because you don't believe him when he says, I make mistakes. And we know, like Prabhupada would say, turn right, but it was left. Or or he would say, I mean, these these things have nothing to do with being a bona fide spiritual master. They have nothing to do with being a liberated soul. They're totally irrelevant to it. It is not a qualification to be a liberated, pure devotee that you be materially infallible because that would be God. And so it's a type of impersonalism where people like to try to sneak in the back door. And and so generally the justification of this is also an impersonal idea. Well, everything Prabhupada said was actually Krishna speaking and Krishna doesn't make mistakes. If that were true, and that what it would mean then is that the more you advance in Krishna consciousness, the less you are a person it would mean that actually we know absolutely nothing about Prabhupada. We never heard Prabhupada say anything that was actually Prabhupada speaking because it was just Krishna. Just sort of almost like, you know, in those seances or sort of like, you know, ghost possessions, that Krishna was just using Prabhupada's body. So we never saw Prabhupada do or say anything. We only saw Krishna using Prabhupada's body. And therefore, the more you become a pure devotee, the less you're a person. So so what it is, it, it, it's kind of imposing on the relationship between God and his pure devotee, the Brahma vimohana Just Just when, when Brahma tried to be bolder Krishna by taking his cows, and his calves and cowherd boys, then Krishna personally took the form of the calves and cowherd boys. In other words, it was really just Krishna that's not Prabhupada. Prabhupada's a real person. Just like among Krishna's wives, you have Satyabama who's very fiery and always talks back to Krishna. And then you have Rupmini, who is more humble. And so, according to this theory of the infallible Prabhupada, actually Rupmini is not, is not uh, sort of timid. And uh, Satyabhama is not fiery. It's just Krishna being fiery and timid with himself, using their bodies, which is absurd and destroys the whole philosophy of, of bhakti and is ultimately impersonalism. We're not really persons. We're just, uh, it's actually the my body idea that the more we think we are individual persons and the more we act with our own free will, then the more we're an illusion and the more we uh, surrender our free will to Krishna and, you know, I have nothing to say, I have nothing to do. You speak and act through me. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's not our philosophy. It's important
2: to know so that we can help like modern thinkers not to like, turn away from the movement.
0: It, absolutely. It like A- and, yes, absolutely. We have to know our philosophy. When Prabhupada... So uh, regarding the definite... For example, Prabhupada... Uh, in a purport in the Gita says, the hottest months of the year are May and June, which is true uh, in India, before the monsoon. On the west coast of this country, the hottest months of the year are, in fact, you can look this up, August and September. And in the southern hemisphere, those are two of the coldest months of the year, May and June. So Prabhupada says, In the second canto, the description of the Rat Rupa, the universal form, that the universal form is displayed for sort of primitive people who are very attached to the material world, and therefore they need to see some sort of uh, super material show, like the universal form, the faith. So I would say people who are still attached to this world need a pure devotee to be a material superman. Like, in order to have faith in Prabhupada, Prabhupada has to be, you know, have, you know, materially omniscient, materially infallible. I personally don't need that because I know that Prabhupada is a pure devotee. I know that he came from the spiritual He actually told me that personally, privately. Prabhupada actually told me uh, that he was never in illusion. He told me that privately. So I know who Prabhupada is. And, you know, whether he is an expert in earthly meteorology, I don't really care that much. Or whether he's up to date with the latest astronomy is irrelevant to me. To me, Prabhupada is a pure soul who will bring me to the spiritual world. I don't need him to be an astronomer.